And now I want to pray the prayer from Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In today's sermon, I want to make three points. Point number one, I want to talk about God's unlikely choice of Mary. And point number two, God's unlikely choice of us. And point number three, the perfect response to God's choice. But point number one, God's unlikely choice of Mary. I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but if you're not a football fan, you may not know this. But when a team is behind late in the game and they need to score a touchdown before time expires, their offense will try to drive to the middle of the field if possible and then on the final play with only a few seconds on the clock, every eligible player on offense runs down toward the end zone and tries to catch the quarterback's desperate heave into the end zone or near the end zone. Often the quarterback is throwing it as far as he possibly can throw it, but he hopes that one of his players in or near the end zone will be able to catch the pass and score the touchdown. Meanwhile, most of the other team's players on defense are trying desperately to prevent that from happening, often by batting the ball down for an incomplete pass. This play has a low probability of success. It usually doesn't work, but some of us, even in this room, were either crushed or elated. Dick, elated! <laughs> when the Alabama Crimson Tide were successful in running this play as time expired in the Auburn-Alabama game about a month ago. And the name of this play actually comes from today's scripture. Did you know that? I'm talking, of course, about the Hail Mary Pass. Catholics pray the Hail Mary prayer, which we Protestants do not believe in praying. There's no biblical warrant for doing so. But you've likely heard the prayer. The first part is Hail Mary, full of grace. And those words come from verse 28. As the King James puts it, Hail, thou that art highly favored. And highly favored could also be translated full of grace. Because to be highly favored by God is literally to be filled with God's grace. Our Protestant objection is not so much with the way the Catholics translate those words, only with how they interpret them. Still, the Hail Mary Pass has become associated with at least a couple of high-profile Catholic quarterbacks over the years. For example, Roger Staubach famously threw a Hail Mary Pass to Drew Pearson to win a playoff game against the Minnesota Vikings in 1975. And even I remember Doug Flutie from Boston College, a Catholic university, in 1984, throwing a Hail Mary pass to defeat the mighty Miami Hurricanes. Flutie won a Heisman Trophy that year in part because of that play. But in a way, it makes sense that this highly unlikely to succeed play has become associated with Mary in today's scripture because no one in their right mind would imagine that God would choose this young woman 
to help fulfill God's plan of salvation in quite this way. Mary herself could hardly have imagined that she would play such an important and necessary role in bringing salvation into the world. To an outside observer, Mary didn't have a lot going for her. She was unlikely to succeed. After all, the very first thing that Luke tells us about Mary in verse 26 is that she's from a backwater town in a backwater region of a backwater country, and that town was called Livonia. Just kidding. <laughs> that town was called Nazareth. We see the general disdain for the town of Nazareth in John's gospel when Philip tells Nathaniel that he's just met Jesus of Nazareth, and that Jesus is the Messiah. And Nathanael responds, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Mary's hometown is one strike against her, and here's another strike. She was poor or working class. We infer this, for, for instance, from Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary present Jesus in the temple 40 days after he was born, they have to offer a sacrifice for their firstborn son, according to Old Testament law. Now, if financially possible, they're required to offer a lamb. If they're poor, however, the law allows couples to offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. That's what Joseph and Mary too. So Mary and Joseph were poor. What kind of Messiah grows up poor and not from a prosperous, well-to-do, prominent family? No one would expect that. That's the second strike. Now here's the third strike. Mary was young. She was probably 14 or 15. That was just the culture. That was the age around which Jewish young women got engaged and married. Joseph was probably only a couple or three years older, yet we would call Mary a child today. She wouldn't be able to drive a car legally or vote or purchase alcohol if she were an American, yet God is calling her to shoulder the heaviest, most important responsibility imaginable to be the mother of the Son of God. Well, that's strike three, but I've run out of strikes because I haven't even gotten to the number one reason that no one would expect Mary to succeed in her mission. And it's a problem that Luke draws attention to twice in verse 27, not to mention Mary herself in verse 34. She is a virgin. She's engaged to be married, but she hasn't yet had intimate relations with Joseph, and she's not going to until they get married, which would be many months from now. Yet she rightly interprets Gabriel's words to be telling her that this pregnancy is going to start right away. <laughs> and if that's the case, then there's more than just one miracle required in order for God's plan of salvation to work out. Not just the fact that Mary, a virgin, will conceive a child and give birth, but that her fiancé will agree to stay with her and marry her even after he finds out she's pregnant. I said this last week, but Mary had a difficult conversation in front of her. Joseph, I'm pregnant. 
but, but let me explain. Even if Joseph believes her story, people would think that one of two things happened. Either they slept together before marriage or Mary cheated on Joseph. In either case, people would talk, people would gossip, people would slander. Mary's reputation would be ruined and Mary would have to live with that shame. Yet somehow, in spite of all that, Mary is being called by God to be the mother of the Messiah, the son of the most high God, the savior of the world. You've got to admit, it all seems unlikely. Mary seems unlikely to succeed. On the other hand, isn't it just like God to do this sort of thing? After all, when God first put his saving plan for the world into action, he made a covenant with the least likely person, a 75-year-old man named Abraham. God chose this man to start a family that would become God's covenant people, whose descendants, God promised, would be as numerous as the stars. Never mind that Abraham and his wife were unable to have children back when they were young and of childbearing age. Never mind that they were now too old to be starting a family. Never mind that another 25 years would pass before Abraham and Sarah would have their promised son. No worries, as Gabriel tells Mary in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Later, when God wanted his people Israel to go and inhabit the promised land, there was only one problem. God's people were in slavery in Egypt. No worries, nothing will be impossible with God. And when God called Moses to be their spokesman and confront Pharaoh, the, the most powerful man in the world, there was only one problem. Moses himself, the Bible says, had a speech impediment, maybe a stutter. And the last time Moses was in Egypt, by the way, he was wanted for murder. No worries. Nothing will be impossible with God. Still later, when God needed a brave military leader to conquer the mighty Midianite army. Whom does God call? A man named Gideon, who at that very moment was literally hiding in fear from the Midianites down in a wine press. A man who by his own admission was the weakest member of his family. He was a chicken, a scaredy cat, a coward. No worries. Nothing will be impossible with God. And you all remember good, good old David, the shepherd boy, probably 13 or 14 years old, whom God calls to stand up to the mighty Goliath. He's not even big enough to put on a suit of armor, yet this mere child is supposed to do what the rest of the Israelite army was too afraid to do, to fight and somehow defeat the mightiest and largest warrior. No worries, nothing will be impossible with God. Or in the New Testament, how about Paul? Great writer, huh? But listen to what his critics said about him according to Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. His letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Yet this same person whom God called to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to start churches throughout the known world. This is that same person. No worries. Nothing 
will be impossible with God. As Paul told the believers at Corinth, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. So in a way, I guess it makes perfect sense that God chose this very unlikely girl from this very unlikely place to do the unlikeliest thing of all, to bring God's son, Jesus, God from God, light from light, true God from true God into the world to be his mother, to raise him, to prepare him for his future ministry. Remember the, um, the senior superlatives in your high school yearbook? Most popular, most congenial, most intelligent, best dressed, most athletic, most likely to succeed. One of my own children, whom shall, who shall remain nameless, received the honor of being voted class clown. But his picture was in the yearbook right next to the person who won, who won most likely to succeed. But my point is, if high school existed back in Mary's day, literally no one would have voted Mary the woman most likely to be the mother of God's son. And yet look what she did. And this brings us to point number two, God's unlikely choice of us. Mary is a remarkable disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not for nothing that some preachers have called her the first Christian an example of Christian discipleship that all of us can emulate. And not to pick on our Catholic brothers and sisters, but this is where they often go wrong. They think that Mary's being highly favored by God or full of grace means that she is some kind of superhero of the faith, some kind of super saint, that she is extra, extra, extra ordinary, that she is especially holy. So, so we think, ugh, I could never be like her, especially when you consider the fact that when she conceived Jesus in her womb, there was literally no human being in history up to that point who had ever been closer to God than Mary. Think about it. She had God literally living inside her, growing inside her. God was physically connected to her because remember, Jesus is both fully human and at the same time, according to the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of the Trinity, at the same time, fully God. So by all means, what God called Mary to do, none of us will ever have to duplicate. Her mission was unique and she accomplished her mission beautifully. But please consider this. If you are in Christ, you have God living inside you too. 
What does the Bible say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Your body is a temple of what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. If you're in Christ, the Spirit lives inside of you. In fact, if you are in Christ, the Bible says that you too are now highly favored by God. In Ephesians 1.6, the same Greek word that Gabriel uses of Mary in today's scripture, translated as highly favored, Paul now uses of, of all of us Christians. Think about that. Remember also the angel's message to the shepherds abiding in the field in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. They say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom God's favor rests. And God's favor rests on us who are in Christ, just as God's favor rested on Mary. If you're a Christian, that means you enjoy all of God's favor too, just like Mary enjoyed God's favor. Isn't there a lesson there for us? Maybe you were never voted most likely, most popular, best looking, funniest, but look out. That only means you're exactly the kind of person that God can use to accomplish great things for his kingdom and for his glory in this world. God isn't looking for great people. He's looking for normal people, average people, badly flawed people, broken people, sinful people, people who've reached the end of their rope. He's looking for losers and failures and has-beens and never wases. He's looking for the least likely people who were unqualified in every way except one. People who, in spite of their lack of qualifications, are nevertheless willing to say yes to God when he calls us. I'd like to give you a sneak preview of this year ahead at the new Tekoa First Methodist Church. Have you heard? We're a new church now, Tekoa First Methodist. I feel, and we're part of the global Methodist church, or we will be very soon. I feel very convicted that we are a church that relies far too much on ourselves and our own gifts and our own abilities. And we feel discouraged because we feel limited by our circumstances. And we look over our shoulders at other churches, for instance, and we feel an inferiority complex. We can't do that. We're not big enough. We're not young enough. We don't have this. We don't have that. We, 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 us, us, us. And I get it but I'm sorry. This is the wrong perspective to have about our church. It's an incorrect understanding of our church. I am struck. I'm struck by two glorious words that often show up together in scripture. For instance, we find them in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Or Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or how about Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Do you know the two words I'm talking about? But God. Nearly the two best words that I can think of that go together. Let us stop saying or thinking of reasons why we can't do this or we can't do that. But we, but we, but we. And let us instead at Tekoa First Methodist learn to say, but God, because nothing will be impossible with God. Say that out loud with me. Nothing will be impossible with God. I don't hear you. Nothing will be impossible with God. Do we believe it? Brothers and sisters, at the new Tekoa First Methodist Church, there's nothing we lack. There's nothing we lack. There are no resources, no facilities, no amount of money, no amount of people that we lack. The only thing we possibly lack is faith or more faith or deeper faith. And God can do something about that in this year ahead at Tekoa First Methodist. Do you believe it? Well, you'll be hearing more about that soon. (laughs) Point number three, the perfect response to God's choice. In verse 38, upon hearing all that God was asking her to do, Mary responds with the most fitting words of Christian discipleship imaginable. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to to your word. In other words, I submit to your will. I surrender to your will, Lord. We Methodists often say something similar, by the way, when we pray our Wesleyan covenant prayer, which includes these words. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. What is the meaning of that prayer if not a slightly wordier version of behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to to your word. Are we willing to say those words and pray those words and believe those words the way Mary did? A little while ago, you heard, you heard us perform that beloved Christmas classic, Mary, Did You Know? If you've been on social media recently, you may have noticed the backlash against that song. There are various memes associated with it. One of them shows a painting of Mary and the baby Jesus with these words, yes, I know, stop asking already. Another asks, Mary, did you know? Yes, Gabriel told me everything in Luke 1, 30 to 33. I, I was pleased to see that the songwriter, Mark Lowry, who wrote the words of the song, has a sense of humor about those memes too. I get the joke, but I think they're mostly unfair to the song. Most of the questions in the song are pretty specific. They certainly aren't questions that Gabriel answers. Besides, there's a big difference between knowing something in your head and knowing something often from painful personal experience. 
And I particularly like that part that goes, did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. That's some eloquent songwriting in my opinion. But yes, it's true that the angel Gabriel shared with Mary the most pertinent information about her son, about what he was coming in the world to do. And I'm sure she could easily imagine some of the many difficulties that she will face because she's going to say yes to God's call by all means. So for example, when Mary says, let it be to me according to your word, she is saying in so many words, I mean, knowing what she knew at that moment, she's saying something like this, give me all the trouble that I know is coming. Because as I say, people knew how to do math back then. They had calendars, they could add up dates, and they knew that pregnancies were supposed to last nine months. Mary knew that by answering yes, she was opening herself up to shame, ridicule, gossip, slander. After all, she told Joseph she was pregnant by the power of the Spirit, and even he didn't believe her, not at first. How likely is it that other people would believe her? So when she said, let it be to me according to your word, she accepted all that trouble. But the song isn't wrong. There's so much about her future that she couldn't have begun to have imagined. Remember after the birth in Luke chapter 2, that old man Simeon prophesied about Jesus to Mary and warned her that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And Mary would begin, to, would begin feeling the sting of that sword almost right away because in a matter of days or weeks or months, she and Joseph and her newborn baby would have to pack up and flee to Egypt in the middle of the night to escape King Herod's murderous clutches. No, Mary didn't know she'd have to do that. There was so much Mary didn't know about her future, so much she couldn't have imagined about her future when she answered God's call and said yes to God. But Mary, Mary did know the God who held her future in his hands. Listen, it is far less important that we know the future than that we know the God who holds our future in his hands. Let me repeat that. It is far less important that we know the future than we know the God who holds our future in his hands. Will we, like Mary, trust God with our future? Before we answer, let's consider this. When Mary was nearing the end of her life, after all the sacrifices, all the trouble, all the fearful circumstances, after Mary felt the full thrust of that sharp sword piercing her soul, after all the pain and suffering she had to endure for the sake of her faithfulness to Christ, do you think Mary said at the end of her long life, I wish I hadn't answered the call? It was way too hard. It wasn't worth the trouble. It wasn't worth the pain. I should have told Gabriel no. Do you think Mary said that by no means? Instead, Mary would have said or thought, it's 
totally worth it. It's totally worth it. Brothers and sisters, because we are in Christ, because we're adopted into God's family through faith, because we have God, the Holy Spirit, living within us, we can know this for sure. On the other side of whatever trouble we face in life, we will be able to say it was totally worth it because I've had Jesus with me this whole time. And I'm going to get more of Jesus and more of his love and more of his grace and mercy and more of the treasure that I find in Christ. Jesus is worth everything, church. Jesus is worth everything. I said it before. I'll say it again. Give yourself, by God's grace, give yourself the best Christmas gift you can ever receive this Christmas. I don't do altar calls very often. And even when I do, nobody comes. We're Methodists. We're, we're too shy. But listen, I, I'm going to make myself available this morning because honestly, God is giving. Maybe you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. I'm not going to let you run the risk of leaving this sanctuary, leaving this church this morning not knowing where you stand with God, not knowing for sure where you're going to spend eternity. So if that describes you, I invite you to come forward. I know it's scary. You worry people are going to judge you. Well, I'm not going to. The Lord Jesus isn't going to. So come on down. I I would be delighted to pray with you, to talk with you, to get you started on this journey of Christian faith. And even more importantly, I, I would like, by God's grace, to help you leave this place knowing that you have received this gift of eternal life. You're going to have it forever. And nothing's going to happen to you in life that's going to take that away from you. And even when you die, which the world considers the worst thing that can possibly happen to any of us, you know that's a transition to a better kind of life than, than any of us can have right now in this world. So that's my invitation. Don't be a Methodist. Come on down. Come on down. Um, Almighty God, please... Please enable each one of us to treasure your son, Jesus, more and more this morning, this season, and throughout our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live, in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.